Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. We are back by popular demand after a, a two-week break, uh, another two-week break following the Frozen Finals. We had one show and then uh, my family's had a, a vacation home for a long time and we had not been since before the pandemic. I needed a lot of R&R after the season. I think we all really did. And so it was just nice to get out and take a break from this, take a break from a lot of things. There are so many things to discuss this week, but uh, I'm not even talking about a two-week show. I'm not talking about a recap show. I'm pretty much just talking about stuff in the last week. When you get to April, it's a funny time because you're at the start of the baseball season. You have, uh, you're just past... March Madness. Well, early April you have March Madness, and you're getting into the NHL, uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs, to the NBA playoffs. Re- uh, you had a big coach retirement. There were there was a bit of controversy, I would say, for people around here. There was a bit of a controversy regarding the Yankees in a couple of senses, as a matter of fact, within the last week. But we start with some. Very sad news, and that was Guy Lafleur passed away at the age of 70 from lung cancer. He was a known smoker, so just another warning to you. I also did not realize that uh, when Mike Bossy passed uh, the previous week, Mike Bossy was also a known smoker. They were roughly the same age, I believe. So if you don't know, Guy Lafleur is perhaps, he's probably the best player in the history of the Montreal Canadiens which is saying something when you consider you have a lot of guys who are so high on the all-time list in Rocket Richard, uh, Maurice Richard, and Henri Richard. You have Jean Beliveau, Jacques Plante, Patrick Waugh, Ken Dryden, Larry Robinson, uh, Yvonne Cournoyer, a number of ridiculously talented players who are some of the best in the history of the game. And you have the Montreal Canadiens, the winningest team in the history of hockey with 24 Stanley Cup titles, second in North American pro sports only to the Yankees in terms of total championships. And Montreal actually led the Yankees for most of the 20th century. So, But Guy Lafleur stands out among somehow among all of those guys. Lafleur and Bossy, both from Quebec, and I'll talk about Bossy just for a, just for a second because I didn't really you know we had a week off and this was it happened before last Wednesday that Bossy passed. Mike Bossy is perhaps the greatest pure goal scorer in the history of the game, and I know it's true that Wayne Gretzky has the most goals ever. No denying that he's the only player to score like 90 goals in a season. He's got 894 goals for his career. And he's also, on top of that, the most prolific passer, the most prolific facilitator, etc., etc., the greatest player in the history of the of the sport. And I would I would argue the greatest single sport athlete ever out of all those out of all the the major team sports. But Mike Bossy scored over 500 goals in a career that only spanned 10 years due to injury. Gretzky played for 20 years, averaged over 45 goals a game. Mike Bossy, along with Gretzky and now Alexander Ovechkin, we'll talk about that in a bit actually, 
are the only three players in NHL history with nine 50-goal seasons. Exactly nine 50-goal seasons. Nobody's ever had more. Differences, Ovechkin's in his 17th season. Gretzky played 20 years. Mike Bossy played 10 seasons. And you could make a very good argument that he's the best player in the history. Look, maybe not best all-around player, but you could make a very good argument that he's the best player and the most important player in the history of the New York Islanders organization, a team that rose from expansion in 1972 to winning the Stanley Cup in 1980 and winning four consecutive Stanley Cup titles from 80 through 83. Mike Bossy, just an incredible player, who I believe won one of those Conn Smythe trophies, but, or won the Conn Smythe trophy one of those times. But when you consider that Brian Trottier and Dennis Potvin, Billy Smith, Clark Gillies, Butch Goring, John Tonelli, Bob Nystrom, all these incredibly talented players on the Islanders were so good. I mean, Trottier is, is one who really stands out. Potvin's probably another big one. But Mike Bossy probably stands out among... Uh, almost any of them. And I also say this because Islanders have also had an effect on me and that they are local. They've helped build. Yeah, I, I, I talked about this with, uh, with Rod Gilbert and Emil Francis and some other people that it's because of guys in that era, teams that, that had such, such success in that era, in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, that have developed hockey in the Northeast, in the New York City area in particular, that have created more jobs and, and it perhaps in a way created the 87s and given me my job and given me a passion for hockey because the Islanders really helped develop to a point where you have a lot of these, a lot of really good, really good players coming from Long Island now as well as New Jersey, Westchester, and Connecticut. But there are guys coming from Long Island, Adam Fox and Charlie McAvoy, two of the best defensemen in the game. Adam Fox, the Norris Trophy winner last year. Both guys from Long Island. Now, albeit both of those guys are actually Ranger fans because they still have a considerable following following on Long Island from before the Islanders got there. But it, it is there are a number of incredible players now who've come from New Jersey, who've come from Long Island, come from this area, and you consider that most of the best American-born players have kind of been limited to Boston area, upstate New York, Michigan, Minnesota, maybe Chicago area, maybe Denver area, usually. But it, th these guys helped expand it. Guy Lafleur was already in a hockey hotbed. At Montreal, Quebec, the birthplace of indoor ice hockey back in the 1870s, I believe. Uh, Lafleur is Hockey Hall of Famer. He stands out uh, among all these, among all these incredible Habs players. From a, t from a statistical standpoint, first NHL player ever with 50 goals in six consecutive seasons, let alone 50 goals and 100 points in six straight seasons. By the by the way, this is this is really more than 100 points. It's his lowest point total over the six-year stretch was 119 points. His highest was 136, which is still the the franchise record for a single season. Also, this is in a point. This is at a time where teams only played, I believe, 80 games instead of 82. There were a couple of seasons there where he only played 78. So it, that's even more impressive. 
He won the Art Ross Trophy as the team as the league's leading scorer in three consecutive seasons. The middle, and it's no, it's no coincidence really that the middle four seasons of this six-year stretch go right along with Montreal's four consecutive Stanley Cup titles from 1976 through 1979, right before the Islanders won the Cup in four consecutive years. Lafleur also won in his second season in 1973. He took a, a, a couple years to really break out, but he certainly did. Uh, he also won the postseason scoring title in each of the Habs' final three cup runs uh, with him there. Uh, he is second in franchise history in goals behind only Maurice Rocket Richard, who had a, a career of 544 goals, first in points and assists. Guy Lafleur, the all-time Montreal leader in points and assists, and I, he may have actually finished with more goals than Richard, or at least he was close. He actually made a comeback late in his career, a few years after he had retired with Montreal. He came back, played two seasons, actually one season with the Rangers and two seasons with Quebec, with the Nordiques, and led them to not the success that he had in Montreal, but played well. Was also part of the most successful single-season team ever, the Montreal Canadiens finished with the most points ever by a team in a regular season. 132 team points for Montreal in the standings in the 1976-77 season. They went on to win their second of four consecutive Stanley Cup titles. And by the way, again, this was in a time where you only played 80 games instead of 82. So even at, at for a number of years, teams have played more games than that and have not reached that level. Also, the 77-78 Habs team finished with 129 points. That's the third most of all time. Sandwiched in between them, a 95-96 Detroit Red Wings team that may be due in part to a, a, a dirty hit by Claude Lemieux on Chris Draper, but the uh, Red Wings team that did not even reach the Stanley Cup final. So it, it takes something to win the President's Trophy, to finish with the best record. I, I don't believe they actually handed out the President's Trophy at this point, but to finish with the best record in the league and to win the Stanley Cup, that's, especially in recent years, that's a much more rare feat. Lafleur, in addition, is tied with another Hall of Famer, Steve Shutt, with 60 goals as a career high, the most in a single season, for Montreal, won the Hart Trophy as league MVP twice, only a handful of players to do that, and he won the Conn Smythe Trophy as postseason MVP in 1977. Although, if you look at his stats, again, he could have won it one, two, or even more times. Moving on to English Canada, as we move from, from one great to a great of a next generation, Austin Matthews becomes the first American-born player ever to score 60 goals in an NHL regular season. Brett Hull had done so. Brett Hull, I think, finished with over 80 goals, I believe. And Brett Hull is American. However, he was born in Canada. His father, Bobby, of course, another all-time legend, played for the Chicago Blackhawks, played for the Winnipeg Jets when they were in the WHA, the World Hockey Association, before they merged with the NHL. 
Brett was born in Canada, but considers himself an American, played for the U.S. national team, and he is one of the great players of all time, over 700 goals. He is, I believe, still the all-time leader in points, or at least he's high on the list, for probably the best St. Louis Blue ever. But there was always kind of a difference. I think Canadians could always... Canadians could always kind of claim Brett Hull in a way, even though he considers himself an American, played for the U.S. national team. But that's why there's sort of a discrepancy between the best American player of all time, where's the best American player, best American-born player, where Brett Hull might be considered the best by some people. Some others might say, you know, because he's not born in the U.S., that it could be my two, I would say Brian Leach, I'd say up, is up there. I would say the best American-born American born forward of all time to this point, I would argue is as great as Mike Modano has been over his career, I could make an argument for Patrick Kane. And Austin Matthews is steadily climbing up that list. And, you know, it's funny. I had mentioned, of course, I would mentioned earlier, you'd think the first player born in the U.S. to score 60 goals in a single season would be from a traditionally hockey-centric community. The Boston area... Upstate New York, Michigan, Minnesota, Chicagoland area, Denver perhaps. Where does Austin Matthews come from? Phoenix, a team that uh, a city that did not have a team or an, a metropolitan area that did not have an NHL team until 1996 when funny enough the Winnipeg Jets would move down there. And you know what the even so the even crazier thing is, and another way for for Americans to take pride in this and for Matthews to take pride in this is that he did it not only for a Canadian team, not just that he did, but for the 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 second most successful organization in the history of the National Hockey League, and the toughest hockey market, that is the toughest media market for hockey, and the most pressured team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. A team that's won the Stanley Cup 13 times, a team that's faced so much pressure because they now, by calendar years, have the longest Stanley Cup drought in the history of the National Hockey League. They have tied the the 40-94 through 94 Rangers for the longest drought in terms of seasons. And so this is not winning the Stanley Cup, but for how much pressure Austin Matthews and the Toronto Maple Leafs organization has faced for how much scrutiny and sort of little brother treatment the United States may receive from uh, from Canada. Because, of course, it is Canada's sport, Canada. In, the sport was invented in Canada. It's been dominated by Canadian players for years. But the U.S. has been a little brother, even when they've won gold in 1960 and 1980. The U.S. has been sort of the, the younger sibling to Canada and even at times the Soviet Union or Russia and at times to, you know, to, to Sweden, the Czech Republic, Finland, 
the 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 big the big six. And so for Matthews to do this and do it for a Canadian team as and a Canadian team as pressured as revered and uh, as widely covered as the Maple Leafs is an incredible feat. Speaking of incredible feats, it's highly unlikely he's going to pass him, but Alex Ovechkin, even though he's probably not going to pass Matthews for the league lead in goal scoring, Alex Ovechkin ties Mike Bossy, as we mentioned, perhaps the greatest pure goal scorer ever. And Wayne Gretzky, no introduction really necessary, for the most 50-goal seasons with nine. Now, this is something that's impressive in general from a hockey standpoint with Bossy, a guy who scored over 500 goals in just 10 seasons, 950 goal seasons in 10 years. Gretzky, the most prolific goal scorer of all time, uh, all-time single-season leader with 92 goals. And so for Ovechkin to do this is something in itself, but it's also something big because he is probably probably the player most emblematic of post-Soviet success from Eastern European players in the National Hockey League. We spoke about late 80s, Late 80s, early 90s is when some of these players began to defect from the Soviet Union. Like Alexander McGilney is one of the guys that kind of almost snuck out of there and became a superstar in the NHL, but some of these guys did not play for long stretches. So guys like uh, Sergei Fedorov was kind of, had a long enough, definitely had a long career, but guys like McGilney and Pavel Bure, perhaps Igor Larionov, a number of these guys came in a little late where they couldn't play a full career in the United States, perhaps, even though McGilney was a 70, maybe an 80 goal scorer, I think, one year. So a lot of talented players have come out of Russia or Ukraine or a lot of these Eastern European countries but Alexander Ovechkin is emblematic of the skill and sheer power that comes out of Russia. And, you know, obviously, from a hockey standpoint, obviously there are world events that may, that you may see that out of, hear that out of context but how much the Russian style has taken over the game. We go back to the Miracle on Ice. Herb Brooks and Team USA wanted to take inspiration from the European style, from Russia, from Sweden, from Finland, from you know Eastern Europe and these Scandinavian countries, and change the game. And they truly have. It's it's de it's developed. And grown so much. One more player who eclipsed 50, who made a significant impact on his franchise, Chris Kreider eclipses 50 goals 
for the first time in his career. As I speak, the Rangers have two games remaining, and he is two games, two goals behind Yarmir Yager for the most in franchise history. So at this point, Kreider has tied Adam Graves for the second most goals in franchise history in a single season with 52. He has two games left. He is the fourth Ranger to score 50 goals in a season. The first Vic Hadfield with 50 in the 71-72 campaign. Adam Graves with 52 in the 93-94 season, Stanley Cup winning season. Yarmir Yager, who added a huge boost to the organization with 54 in the 05-06 season. So Kreider needs one to pass Graves for solely for second, two to tie Yager for the all-time franchise lead, and three to surpass him. Can be done. Maybe the craziest thing out of all of this is I have heard hockey experts, I consider myself a hockey expert, but I have heard hockey experts, you know, coaches and stuff like that, talk about Chris Kreider as a guy who has not really played up to his potential. He's a guy who can play to a lot more. He has been a great player for the for the Rangers for 10, 11 years now. It's, it's hard to believe that he's actually been around there that long. But he had never even scored 30 goals in a single season. He had never scored 30 goals in a regular season prior to this year, and he jumps up to 52. Something that is remarkable, and it is in large part because of that effort, because he he's also not just a one-dimensional player. He's not a, an incredible facilitator. He, he's not the best player on the team. He, he, certainly you can defer to Artemi Panarin or to Adam Fox, even Mika Zibanejad. But yeah, definitely the best goal scorer. It took a long time for him to finally emerge as that. And he's also a fine penalty killer, I'll say. He's a, he's a decent defensive forward. He can he, One of the things I heard from, from some experts is that is just bad hockey sense, which at times you will see. But it is in large part because of this goal-scoring effort that he won the Stephen McDonald Extra Effort Award for the first time in his career. After 11 seasons with the Rangers, he is the longest tenured active player with the organization. And so it's rather funny that it took him that long uh, to win it. If you don't know the Stephen McDonald Extra Effort Award, I can tell you just because I'm from around here, uh, from the New York City area, uh, the Stephen McDonald Extra Effort Award goes each year to a ranger who goes above and beyond uh, the Call of Duty. It was... It's been given since 1987, apparently, in honor of uh, New York police officer, NYPD officer Stephen McDonald, who was shot in the line of duty, had to live in a wheelchair for the next 30 years of his life, and I think he had, I believe he had a breathing tube, as a matter of fact, but they carry on that tradition, have carried that on for, hard to believe, 35 years now. And uh, Kreider has been emblematic of the 
consistency and effort of the Ranger organization. So I just wanted to start with that, really. A few major goal-scoring accomplishments. Most of all, Matthews, for sure, and, and what that means for American-born players, especially in the southern United States. Moving on to the NBA postseason, I want to talk quite a bit in depth regarding the, the Celtics-Nets series, at least. One, because it's closer geographically to me, I think, for one thing, but it also carried a lot of significance when you consider how much hype has been put behind this Nets team for, what, two, three years now? Um, maybe not from the point that Kyrie Irving got there, but uh, but at once Kevin Durant got there, it was definitely the two of them together, there was so much emphasis on this team. And it's a team that has been swept in the first round out of the postseason. They go, what, uh, they have James Harden for, what, a few months maybe? Didn't have him at the beginning of the season. Did not have him at the end of the season. Ben Simmons didn't play. And it is kind of embarrassing, I would say, if you're a Nets fan. I'd have to imagine. You know, but this all really centers around, centers on Kyrie Irving. So Kyrie Irving, first off in game one, after in a real back and forth game, Jason Tatum has game winning layup. As time expires, Kyrie Irving flipped off the Celtics fans. That's that's not the nicest way to put it, but it is not the well, certainly not the worst play, way I can put it. Now, I would say I agree with the league's decision. He should be fined. There shouldn't even be a question that he should be fined. But I would say that he probably should have every right to do so if racial slurs are involved. Now, you, you may wonder why would I bring that up, but... Kyrie is obviously an eccentric person. He's obviously done a number of things with which people will disagree, uh, whether it's or, or or just be kind of irked, but maybe not irked by. Yeah, sometimes maybe irked by, or just confused by. And I mean from. You know, not getting vaccinated, that's one thing. You look, you have every right not to get vaccinated if you don't want to. You also missed out on a lot of money. Well, actually, you know what? You didn't really miss out on a lot of money, now that, I think, now that I think about it. But he missed out on a lot of games. And there was, what, there was, when he brought the incense into TD Garden, and when he stepped on the, le when he stepped on the Celtic logo... Uh, there's been a lot of weird stuff. When he forced his way out of Cleveland and into Boston and then forced his way out of Boston and into Brooklyn. And it's just, it's, it's very, very odd and very controversial. So especially when he forced his way into and out of Boston, that's going to level a lot of things with Celtic fans. And so they, look, they have every right to be upset with Kyrie Irving for pretty much forcing his way out of Boston and to a division rival. And then, of course, there's also that Boston-New York rivalry for so long. But I do bring up the racial aspect because Boston is a city with a complicated relationship with race. 
as a number of cities are, but Boston, even in recent years, has had a complicated relationship with race, especially with its athletes and visiting athletes. There have been a number of instances. I mean, you go back far enough, you talk about the Red Sox being the last team to integrate uh, with Pumpsy Green. Again, that's 1959, but still, that's true. There was, or Of course, they changed Yawkey Way to Jersey Street because of Tom Yawkey's reluctance to bring in an African-American player. There's the, the, the media and the fans' complicated relationship with Bill Russell. There were uh, the, the racial slurs yelled at Adam Jones a few years ago. You may remember that. And so, and again, it's not that, uh, that Boston in general, that any city in general, you can't judge an entire group of people, it's kind of the, uh, kind of arguing against racism in the first place, you can't argue that an entire group of people are one thing, but it is noticeable, it's been a trend through a, a, a few bad eggs, just bad people, there's been a racial history in Boston that has not been great. Uh, not to say there I mean, the words racial history do, usually do not come with a great connotation, but still. But not many people really have pointed out this part uh, when it comes to Kyrie, this whole, the racial history. But, I, I mean, from, just from listening to a lot of media outlets Every media outlet, when they talked about this, or everyone that I heard, when they talked about Kyrie Irving flipping off the fans and how he has a right to, you know, and some people might say he has a right to do it. Generally speaking, I don't think anyone would say you have a right to, to, to flip off the fans. I mean, if they have just said negative things, but it depends on the on how bad they are. And nobody really brought up the one really understandable thing, aside from, I mean, God forbid, it was like you know, like last year when you throw when you uh, the Sixers fans threw stuff at Russell Westbrook, or when the the Knicks fans spit on spit in Trey Young's direction. Unless it's something of this physical, nobody really brought up the racial aspect of it. But you could tell that people were clearly hinting at it, because uh, unless there is that racial aspect or the physical aspect, I, you have to be the bigger person and avoid giving into the crowd. Because the truth is, if you make a a gesture like that, that's only going to feed the crowd more. That's only going to feed the frenzy. You're fighting fire with fire, and that does not always work. And so, with that, Kyrie Irving fed into the Boston Celtic fan base. Even with a 17-point lead in Game 2, the Nets blew that one. The Celtics come back. They go up two games to none. They take Game 3 in Brooklyn. And they take Game 4 in Brooklyn for a clean sweep. Now, there was, I'll say, first off, Ben Simmons still has not played for the Nets, despite, uh, you know, him, uh, the reasoning for him not playing was not the, the mental thing, which, again, I get it, but uh, at this point, it's it's not mental anymore. It's It was his back, apparently. 
And they kept teasing toward the end of the year, Ben Simmons might be back. Ben Simmons might be back. Ben Simmons might be back. And then early in the postseason, you figure, okay, he's probably going to be back. And then into the Celtics series. Okay, he's got to come back now. Then by the time Game 3 rolls around, you see him dressed like he's an orange creamsicle. And the, the most, I think, noticeable of clothing, especially in a, in a crowd that's all, like Barclays, I've been in Barclays Center, and you can tell from TV anyway, but it is a dark building. And so, and of course the Nets are, primary colors are black and white, so everybody's wearing black. And then you just see Ben Simmons just pop out. That can only infuriate Nets fans more. To see him right there. And he'd been practicing. He'd been practicing with the team. But if you're not willing to come back in game three or game four, down two games to none, down three games to none, you you might have to question, really question Ben Simmons when he hasn't played all year. Again, not a great home crowd in either building. There, there was a noticeable Nets contingent in Boston there was an even more noticeable Celtics contingent in Brooklyn. I mean, again, to the victor go the spoils. The Celtics were up two games to none by the time they got to Brooklyn. But still, really good road crowds for both teams. The Nets did have some positives in this series. Blake Griffin. Blake Griffin has really played his rear end off all year. He provides a lot of hustle. He's been a pretty good defender. And he's provided a spark, I think, for the team. Seth Curry played very well. Seth Curry, you know, for for as much attention as his brother will get over him over the course of his career, some people do not realize how good a shooter and how good a player Seth Curry actually is. And he's, I think he's a bit undervalued. Played very well in this series for the Nets. The offense was not their problem, uh, as did Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant played well. Uh, Kyrie Irving was good, but again, still just a distraction, a clear distraction for this team. He was paid, I think I heard this right. Okay, yeah, it's true. So Kyrie Irving made about 33 and a third. He made 33.3 repeating whatever million dollars this year was not restricted by the amount of games he played the net the nets didn't you know prorate his pay because of how many games he missed no they paid him 33 point they paid him the full salary and he played through the regular season and postseason combined 34 games he got paid nearly a million dollars a game for a team that got swept in the first round uh, and they played, what, 82, 87 games this year. He played quite a bit under half their games. And so when you have your best, second, but a top, at the very least top three, at least when Harden was there, player not there for most of the year, and it's not injury-related, and it's not an illness, it's not a personal thing, not really a personal thing. It's not a, you know, it's not a family emergency or anything. 
you have a problem and a clear distraction. I, you know, again, he's got every right not to get vaccinated, but it's also ridiculous that he got paid. I, there are people who got fired over this in New York City, uh, you know, public workers and whatever, who were making, I don't know, five digits, probably, maybe, I, I don't even know if, six, probably five digits, and this guy's getting paid nearly a million dollars a game, and they they bring back these, or they, they withdraw these restrictions, and in a lot of ways it's for him, and so I think it's just kind of unfair, and it's kind of selfish. I mean, just to be, be willing to sit out, take all the money, and knowing, I don't know, how much reliance there is from this team on him, because he's the guy who ultimately started all this. He's the guy who said, you know, I want to come to Brooklyn. I want, I want Kevin Durant to come with me. We want James Harden. You know, we are, I think we're all head coaches, et cetera, et cetera. And I look, I believe in free agency, but I also believe this is a this is kind of this specific instance, it's almost a point where one player has just too much agency over an organization. Um, uh, for the for the Nets in addition, I will say Andre Drummond, you have Andre Drummond. He barely played at least while they were in Brooklyn, which is crazy considering they needed size. I know apparently you know he couldn't defend at least as of late but I don't I don't know it's, it's worth a shot if you're down three games to none Ben Simmons I will say would have been a huge difference as a facilitator he's an excellent passer he's a phenomenal defender especially for a guard someone with size would have been a huge difference for the Nets Nets also would have been frankly the Nets also would have been in a much better spot had they not traded Jarrett Allen and Karis LeVert. One guy who is one of the better, I would argue, defensive centers in the league. Very good. He's a starting center. It made a big difference for Cleveland this year. Karis LeVert did a good job in Indiana. Fine outside shooter. Good sharp shooter. And, but really, you know, Nets would have been better in a better spot, probably, have had they not traded these two guys, a point that would perhaps be moot if Ben Simmons had actually played this season at all, let alone in the postseason. And so it's just kind of a joke. Where do you go from here if you're the Nets? Do you trade Ben Simmons? Do you break down entirely? I doubt they'll do the latter, but I would not be totally surprised if the former happened. would make a lot of sense to trade away Ben Simmons if somebody will take him if he'll play again that's the that's the real question because there I would say there is concern as to whether he'll play again I, and I don't think it has anything to do with his health at least his physical health I don't know I don't get it but just moving our way throughout the NBA playoffs uh, let's start with keep going with the Eastern Conference Miami Heat have already finished up the Atlanta Hawks Four games to one. They closed out game five in Miami, 97 to 94. 
the one seed advances. Real bounce back for Miami after last year getting knocked out by Milwaukee, and perhaps those two teams are on a collision course again to possibly meet in the conference final. The the Bucks up three games to one on Chicago as I record this. No Caruso, no Zach Levine for Game Five. I mean, if the Bucks somehow blow this series, it's going to be insane. But the Heat closing out the Hawks on that big steal by. Bam out of Iowa that put away the game. And again, you know that there's a problem with Atlanta if they're unable to take advantage of big opportunities. The Nets didn't take advantage of a big opportunity. Look, the series was almost over by then anyway, but the Nets didn't take advantage of a big opportunity when Jason Tatum fouled out with about three minutes left in the fourth quarter of Game 4. It was still a pretty tight game. And then for the Hawks, they didn't take advantage of playing against a Heat team without Jimmy Butler or Kyle Lowry in Game 5. But again, that shows the flexibility and depth of the Miami Heat roster that Victor Oladipo cruised with 23 points. The Heat had a 17-0 run. They played much better defensively in this game, limited the Hawks to 94 points. Trey Young was limited to just 11 in this Game 5, the Heat won all of their games at home and stole one in Atlanta as well. And just proving that they can spread the ball around. Even after Jimmy Butler had 36 in Game 4, a big blowout win in Atlanta. Whereas no other player had more than 14. P.J. Tucker and Adebayo each had 14. Max Struess had 12. Gabe Vincent had 11 in that game, and no other player had more than six. Oladipo played 23 minutes. He had six points in game four. And so that that shows you that Miami can beat you with a lot of different guys. Hopefully Butler and Lowry will be back. And again, Lowry wasn't even playing for game four. So another opportunity that the Hawks had after taking game, game four, game three at home. But... Again, that also shows that the Heat really have the depth that Atlanta, I don't think, quite does. I, Not to mention, they don't have a ton of cap room. They don't have a lot of, or they don't have a, a large budget, a lot of space in their budget to try to hold on to these guys, especially Trey Young, because he is... There are some good players on Atlanta, but I think he's that much more important to them, by by, by far and away more, more important than anyone else. But again, very limited in this series. You look at his, his play in Game 4. He had 9 points. 9 points and 5 assists. They had to rely more on DeAndre Hunter, who had 24. Kevin Knox had was their second leading scorer. That was, that was, in 4 minutes and 16 seconds on the floor... Kevin Knox was their second leading scorer in Game 4. Trey Young was not in this series what he was against the Knicks in the playoffs last year and against the 76ers. And that was not just a facilitator, but the team's number one scoring option, frankly. And the, the Heat very much limited him in this series. The Heat did a much better job defensively. They are a very fundamentally sound team.
and that all starts with with Adebayo in the middle, but a lot of these guys are great defenders, and they're very smart players. To this point, the Sixers lead the Raptors three games to two. However, that's kind of taken out of context. The Sixers took the first two games at home, took game three on the road, a, a, a late three by Joel Embiid that put the game away. And then the Raptors come back, take game four. They steal game five in Philadelphia by fairly large margin, despite being without Fred Van Vliet, who, aside from maybe Pascal Siakam, is their, most, is their best player. And maybe their most lethal scorer. They're definitely their best outside shooting threat. And so the Sixers are in danger because, if you think about it, when coming back from down three games to none, I have reasoned that... If you are the road team in the series, now in this case it's 2-2-1-1-1, two, two, one, one, one. it's not 2-3-2, two, two. but I would say the biggest win of the four in this instance I think is actually game five, because the Sixers have a chance to close you out at home, and it's, it's highly expected they'll, they'll close them out. Game four, you at least have at home. You're playing with your backs to the wall. You're down three games to none. You figure, okay, we're probably going to avoid, they'll probably avoid a, sleep, a sweep. Game five, you're playing on the road. Sixers are likely to close it out. But because the Raptors took game five, game six is a huge, a huge swing in Toronto's favor at home. Crowd will really be in it. And game seven is just a toss-up even if it's on the road. I think Game 5 is the toughest one to win out of all of them. So, I think either the Raptors are going to lose this series in 7 games or win in 7. I don't think the Sixers close it out in Toronto. But it would be another kind of failure on the par on the other end of that uh, James Harden deal, that, that Sixers-Nets trade. Western Conference, you have the uh, Grizzlies and the Timberwolves. Grizzlies up three games to two in this series. Rather surprising to me, but then again, I, I think a lot of us were surprised by the Grizzlies even getting the two seed for the first time in their history. This is actually the first time, I believe this is the first time they've ever had home court advantage in a playoff series. If not, it's the second time, but it's still ridiculous. But the Grizzlies surprisingly dropped one game at home to the Timberwolves, one game in Minnesota. The, the Timberwolves even this series. And John Morant with a layup with one second left in Game 5 after an insane, an insane dunk earlier that reminded me a lot of DeAndre Jordan. But the Grizzlies stake a huge comeback. They have the opportunity to close out the Timberwolves Game 6 from the Target Center in Minneapolis. I would say that on paper, the Timberwolves are actually a deeper team and I think have a better starting lineup. When you look at Towns, you look at Edwards, I, I think you look at that whole lineup. I think they're a deeper team than Memphis. Relies, I, th I think, in mostly on Morant, of course, but Jaron Jackson Jr. But Morant has really taken over in this series, and that's... Uh, when you have one guy to, to try to close things out, it makes a difference sometimes against an entire team. Sometimes one guy can beat a whole team. 
Suns lead the Pelicans. This one is way more surprising. The fact that the Pelicans have pushed this to at least six games. The Suns up three games to two on the Pelicans in this series. The Pelicans, like the Timberwolves, took a game on the road and took one at home. Suns claim game five in Phoenix. I can only imagine where they'd be if Zion Williamson was playing. Even a, a minimal amount. I, I mean, if they can... Phoenix is far and away the, the, the toughest team in the Western Conference. I think it's Phoenix and then, when entirely healthy, probably Golden State right now. But if the Pelicans can force the Suns to at least a sixth game without Zion Williamson, then there is a lot more to that organization than we probably thought at the midway point of the year. And Brandon Ingram has really come into his own. Mavericks lead the Jazz three games to two. I'll say I haven't watched a ton of the NBA postseason, but I, I think Game 5 in Dallas was probably the most impressive crowd I've heard uh, since the playoffs began this year. I, I think part of that was the return, return of Luka Doncic, and, and the fact that it's a two, it was a 2-2 series uh, without him for a lot of that time is, just something, for, is something impressive for Dallas. The Jazz, meanwhile, uh, Donovan Mitchell is injured, but an MRI reveals no hamstring damage. Uh, and this is, uh, of course, after Doncic did return. So, uh, God forbid we'd have to watch this series without these two guys. But uh, Donovan Mitchell's a warrior and, well, met metaphorically a, a warrior. But as I get into the actual Warriors, we lead the Nuggets three games to one. The Nuggets pull out a late come-from-behind victory in Denver in game four. Warriors likely to close this one out, I would think. Steph Curry did not start in Game 4, should probably get some more time, although Jordan Poole has been excellent. Uh, Bucks lead the Bulls three games to one, as we mentioned. Uh, no Levine, no Caruso. I, I, I can't imagine the Bucks don't finish this thing off in Game 5 and advance immediately. That's it for the NBA playoffs. There's one more thing I want to discuss in terms of basketball, but it is college-related. And that is Jay Wright is retiring after 21 seasons as Villanova men's basketball's head coach. Won two national championships in 2016 and 2018. Fordham head coach and former Villanova assistant Kyle Neptune is going to replace Wright. Jay Wright has actually made quite an impact on my career kind of indirectly because, of course, I went to Seton Hall. Seton Hall and Villanova, huge rivals, and two of the more dominant programs in the Big East. You can make a, I mean, all-time aside from, at least in recent years, I think aside from UConn who just returned to the Big East, you can make the argument that, that Seton Hall is, is probably closest to Villanova in terms of dominant programs, even though, I mean, you have so many good ones from Providence to, I mean, Georgetown's been on and off, but still Providence, Xavier, Creighton, Marquette, Butler, a lot of great programs, and that's not even all of them. But Villanova has been the toast of the Big East pretty much since the, the reformation of the conference back in 2013, when a lot of members of the conference, original members, left because of football, pretty much, and joined the American Athletic Conference. So, th then, 
the conference reformed. They held on to their to, to five big programs. They held on to Providence, St. John's, Seton Hall, and Georgetown, who were all original founding members of the conference in 1979. Villanova came along a year later in 1980. Villanova won one national championship in 1985. They upset Georgetown. Uh, they upset a, an incredible team with Patrick Ewing that maybe should have won more titles. But they have been elevated to such unbelievable heights since Jay Wright took over. Jay Wright originally coached at Hofstra. And after, I think, about seven years with that program, was able to sign and join Villanova. Even though this is this was a national championship program already, he made this team the he made it the best program in the Big East, and at the moment it is the best program in the Big East. I don't know what happens after his departure, but Villanova not just within the conference, winning the Big East tournament seemingly every year since the Reformation back in 2013, but they all they also had made the Final Four back in 2009. That was probably my earliest remembrance of Villanova basketball when they made the Final Four with uh, Michigan State was in there. I think UNC won the whole thing. But remembering that, that was crazy. And then they win the title in 2016, even after losing to Seton Hall in the Big East Tournament. Villanova is still the, the, the ultimate competitor from this conference. They knock off UNC, Chris Jenkins with the the, the, the shot off the feed from Ryan Archidiacono. One of the best, maybe the best national championship game ever. That was in Houston, I believe, and just an explosive celebration. And then they shock the world. They win again two years later in 2018. They knock off Michigan to win the title. And the funny thing is, too, with Villanova is that a lot of their best guys for those national championship teams in particular have not had great pro success. They're all great players, but they fit very well into that system. And I kind of said this about, you know, like like Bill Belichick, like some of these, like so many of their receivers and running backs, they're not really Hall of Famers and don't have a, maybe they might not have a lot of success with other organizations, but they're very well coached. And I would say with Wright, another thing is, especially with the transfer portal and all that stuff and guys going one and done, he's held on to his players for a lot longer. And there are some coaches who are, who are just able to do that, and he really did that. But a, a lot of the guys at Villanova did not have incredible careers at, in the NBA, you, uh, you look at a guy like Ryan Archidiacono, who's the most outstanding player of the tournament in 2016, I didn't really go that far at a professional level. You look at Chris Jenkins, hit the winning shot. Look at a lot of these guys, and the only two that really stand out, at least from the title-winning teams, are Jalen Brunson and Josh Hart. Those are two guys who are not really superstars in the NBA, but they are significant players. But it's it's really something when you consider how 
Jay Wright got as much talent, wrung out as much talent and skill and intelligence from his guys as anybody could for those title-winning teams in particular. I also coached Kyle Lowry, but again, that was a little earlier on. But I will say, Jay Wright actually coached for Villanova in the last game I ever called for Seton Hall. Aside from, well, we did the la- we did a few months later, and WSOU was nice enough to bring me back, I think probably early in the spring of 2020, or midway through the spring, they had the last dance tournament for New Jersey high school baseball, and they had me come back and do one game, which was very nice because I had already graduated. But really the last game I ever called for WSOU for Seton Hall, and I unfortunately didn't know it at the time, was Seton Hall versus Villanova. This was March, uh, this must have been March 4th, I want to say. I'm not sure. Uh, It was not long before the shutdown. March 12th was the shutdown. But it was maybe the week before that Seton Hall had lost to Villanova. It was senior night, and I think it might have been the final game of the regular season for... No, no, it was the second-to-last game of the regular season for Seton Hall. And I... I, 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 My memory's still a little spotty, but I kind of vaguely remember being in the press room at the Prudential Center, Jay Wright coming in. He was very gracious, very nice, spoke... Spoke kindly about the Seton Hall program. I've said this uh, as well about uh, Tom Izzo when he came in when, earlier in the year when I was fortunate enough fortunate enough to do play-by-play for Seton Hall against Michigan State, which was an incredible game. And Jay Wright is kind of on the same same wavelength with with a Tom Izzo. I think he's already in the the Basketball Hall of Fame. But it's, uh, it is quite something. It is quite certainly the end of an era at Villanova and the end of an era of incredible success that uh, it really has, has transformed the conference. You have a lot of, of great teams, a lot of great programs in the Big East Conference, but it is because of Villanova that they are really recognized as much as they are, that this conference is recognized as much as it is, at a national level. couple more things. I want to talk about baseball for a little while. So, first off, let's talk about Miguel Cabrera, who becomes the, I think, 33rd player ever to record 3,000 hits for his Major League Baseball career. He is now only the 7th player in history with 500 or more home runs, and 3,000 or more hits. So it's Miguel Cabrera, and before that, going backwards, Albert Pujols, Alex Rodriguez, Rafael Palmero, Eddie Murray, Willie Mays, and Hank Aaron. Now, I will tell you, I had purchased Yankees Guardians tickets for my parents because it was, you know, between their, their birthdays are around there, and I had also gotten it for Christmas. Just because you know my parents are Yankee fans, I figured I figured they'd enjoy it. So I had gotten them tickets for that game. So I I wasn't really watching the Tiger game. I was just kind of watching more. Well, I don't I don't know if it was even on nationally anyway, but I was kind of more watching the Yankee game. And 
Michael Kay had cut in and said, Miguel Cabrera just got a 3,000th hit, and then asked aloud where he ranks among right-handed hitters. So this really got me thinking because of those seven players, only three of them have a 300 or better batting average for their career. And that's Mays, Aaron, and Miguel Cabrera. I would also say you could kind of rule out uh, Alex Rodriguez because of steroid use. Yes, he was a he has incredible statistics, and I would say prior to his steroid use, which we uh, he has said I believe was once he got to Texas, his seven years in Seattle were outstanding and put him on pace for a Hall of Fame career. But you know, if you took steroids, you took steroids. So let's take him out of the equation there. Palmero, if we're just talking about the righties here, Palmero was a lefty hitter. Palmero was also uh, at least a, a significantly accused of steroids if he didn't take them. But, I mean, look at his stats. He'd be a Hall of Famer if there wasn't such a controversy around him. Albert Pujols, I will say, is a much better power hitter than Cabrera. Obviously, Pujols is approaching 700, maybe could get to 700. He's at 681 home runs as I speak. So he's uh, And he's only played two more years. Cabrera's at, I think, just over 500. He just reached 500 home runs. So Pujols is obviously a much better power hitter, and I would say a more consistent power hitter as well. I don't think he's ever had a 50-homer season. I think his highest was 49. Then, uh, but the, the counter argument there is that Cabrera is better for average, especially by comparison in the second halves of their careers, because if you look at the last 10 years for Cabrera, we also don't know when Cabrera's career is going to end, but if you look at the last 10 years for Cabrera, and you look at the last 10 years, or and you look at the 10 years for pool, 10 or so years for Pujols, once he got, uh, after he got to the Angels, Cabrera is much better. He's at a much better back nine of his career. it's I think Pujols was a 300 hitter in St. Louis, but it's because of his time in Anaheim that his, his batting average went down below it for his career. Cabrera, in addition, won the first Triple Crown in 45 years, the last one being Carl Yastrzemski in 1967. So, and yes, I know Pujols has three MVPs. I think Cabrera only has the one, and Pujols has won a couple of championships. Cabrera has not. That's Those are kind of extenuating circumstances, though. The, the So I would argue, really, that Cabrera is probably third or fourth. You could interchange him maybe with Pujols. Maybe the third or fourth best right-handed hitter ever. Now, another counter-argument is that there are some guys that are high on the list of right-handed hitters who are outside 500 home runs and or 3,000 hits. That's a number of Hall of Famers, including Frank Robinson, who had 586 home runs and is the only player to win the MVP in both leagues. You have Dave Winfield, who had 3,000 hits, 465 dingers. Joe DiMaggio, who is, I would argue, a top three player in the history of the game, but only played 13 seasons Due, I don't know if really an in due to injury, but more so, you know, he lost a few key years 
due to service in World War II. He lost three years off his career, as did Ted Williams, as did a number of great players. Al Kaline, who is maybe the best all around. Well, I mean, there's Ty Cobb up there, but Al Kaline is probably the best career Tiger. 3,000 hits, 399 home runs. Jimmy Fox, who is who was probably the best power hitter of his era in the kind of the, the era just between Babe Ruth and going into the the World War II era, I would say. It's probably Jimmy Fox, maybe Mel Ott's up there as well. Mike Schmidt, best power hitting third baseman ever, and I would say a top I would say the best hitting third baseman ever. His 500 home runs, especially for someone at that position, that's remarkable. Frank Thomas has over 500 home runs, a couple of MVP awards. Roberto Clemente with over 3,000 hits. He's a great all-around player, but his hitting is a bit overshadowed. Honus Wagner, one of the best pure hitters ever, even for his era, and especially for his era. However, very few players have merged power hitting, hitting for average, and longevity. That's, that's another key point, especially when you mention DiMaggio or guys like that. Longevity better than Miguel Cabrera has. Now, there was something else significant in that Yankee game, and that was just a really unfortunate incident in the, the ninth inning. Yankees were down 4-3. to three. Great game if you didn't watch it, by the way. I think Nestor Cortez took a no-hitter into the fifth, and Cal Quantrill pitched very well for Cleveland as well. But then it became kind of a slugfest late. Yankees had a... Uh, Cleveland goes up 2-0 on a two-run homer by Josh Naylor. This is all off the top of my head, actually. Josh Naylor kind of reaches out, pokes a two-run homer into the right field seats. Yankees tie it. Josh Donaldson homers to, to give them a 3-2 lead. Chad Green surrenders a long home run, a no-doubter by Austin Hedges in the eighth inning, puts Cleveland back in front 4-3. Yankees tied the game in the ninth. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa hits a double off the wall and left. So that brings in the tying run. Stephen Kwan, the left fielder, runs into the wall. And look, I will, I will say this. I noticed last year when they were kind of coming out of the pandemic that uh, this is an aside here, really. This is beside the point. But... You'll notice this year that at Yankee Stadium, in left field and right field, there are just clear, just fences now. Just, you know, the the, the regular kind of iron, I guess, fences. I don't, I don't know what material it exactly is. But until this year, those were hand-operated scoreboards, which I liked. And, I, and they weren't really being used last year. I don't know if, that's, if that has to do with, I don't know, cost-cutting or something. I don't know. But now there are kind of fences and then there's an LED advertisement behind it. So Kiner for left of doubles. Stephen Kwan, the left fielder for Cleveland, goes into the wall. He gets hurt. He kind of braces himself a little bit with his arm, but really just does not look good. His, his, you know, his head bangs into the fence. Uh, Kiner for left has a great hit. It's a, it's a clean, it's definitely a hit. It's a double. Tim LaCastro scores, ties the game. And then... Some fans, I don't know who they are. I don't know if 
The Yankees or Major League Baseball have tracked them down yet, but some just garbage people, uh, or uh, I assume garbage people, if if Straw reacted this way, basically harass Stephen Kwan while he's being treated, possibly for a concussion, on the field. And because uh, I, I can only imagine, so Miles Straw goes up and pretty much climbs the fence, implants himself in the fence, kind of high on this fence to talk to whoever these fans are, and they must have said something bad for for that for it to elicit that kind of reaction. And it's very disappointing. It, well, first off, Stephen Kwan didn't do anything wrong to the Yankees, didn't do a thing. So to kick a guy when he's down, metaphorically, uh, but and uh, for the latter part of that of that statement, literally, is just absolutely awful and ridiculous. And no fan, no Yankee fan, no fan of any team should be doing that. And Quan didn't do any, especially if Quan didn't do anything to, yeah, didn't do anything to the Yankees to you know to to offend the fans or anything like that. So it's just awful, ridiculous. Hope they find those people and ban them. And then, uh, Quan stays in the game. I, I, I was hoping they were going to take him out just for his health, but and they kept him in the game. He said he was okay to go. Glaber Torres pinch hits, singles in the right center, uh, runs scores. Uh, Kiner Falefa scores, comes around, wins the game. Great game, five four Yankee victory. Uh, thrilling on both sides. It was a, a pitcher's duel that turned into a, a late slugfest. A lot of homers. Great game. And it was a game that would normally be more celebrated if not for what had happened immediately before and immediately after this uh, Torres incident. I will also say, Miles Straw is not entirely off the hook either because I understand that reaction when you're uh, when someone says something to Quan, but when you climb up the fence when you climb on that fence it's i mean he, he didn't take a swing at anybody or anything but still the optics of that are so bad you need to have a little more awareness and it 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 looks like a threatening act when you are moving toward those people and you're considering climbing out of the field of play to perhaps, at least it looks like, do something pretty bad. So, he's not entirely off the hook, I'll say, either. Even though, clearly, Yankee fans started this. Uh, whoever these uh, fans are. And, and, you know, I mentioned the, uh, the same thing with Boston. You can't single out all Yankee fans for this. Actually, well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. You can't... Uh, anyway. Immediately after... The Torres single, game's over, Yankees are celebrating, and these, a number of just, I would assume just awful people, start throwing things on the field, uh, most notably I think at Oscar Mercado, the right fielder, as if that makes any sense, I don't know, I don't know what he did wrong, not that you should be throwing the things at straw in the first place, and certainly not at Quan, but they're throwing bottles and et cetera, et cetera, on the field. I'm grateful that they really only serve plastic bottles now. And it's just, 
it's a madhouse. It's really a madhouse. Cleveland's got to get their guys out of there, and these are it's just horribly, just a total lack of civility from Yankee fans, from these people in the right field seats. And you also have to remember, by the way, if God forbid you're throwing something out of the stands, more than likely, especially because you have a terrible arm, it's going to hit someone in front of you. It's not going to hit your intended target. It's probably going to hit someone in the back of the head and hurt them. Okay, and you should be grateful that it's not that it's not glass really anymore. But you can still throw something. You can find something that's going to hurt someone. Uh, so, uh, for God's sake, just stop. Just so stupid and awful. Anybody who threw stuff on the field should probably be banned for life. But I, I would say more so, I think the people at left in left field are more at fault for just kind of starting this thing and, real again, kicking Quan when he's down. I will say, credit to the Yankees themselves. Most notably, you see Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, and I think Joey Gallo is another big one. They go out to right field and pretty much tell the fans, stop, knock it off. You know, you got to be better than this. Kind of similar to, I remember when the Blue Jay fans were throwing things on the field in that uh, Game 5, Rangers and Blue Jays, the, the Bautista home run and the, the, the bat flip, but Blue Jay fans were throwing stuff on the field. Uh, first off, they were throwing stuff on the field after the uh, the, the the Rangers took the lead when the, the throwback to the mound hit, Rudnett Odor's bat went off his, but it was a, it's a legal play. It's, you know, it's just incidental, run scores, they start throwing stuff on the field. They start throwing stuff on the field again in excitement after Bautista homers, and Edwin Encarnacion is pretty much getting his hands up and saying he's coming to the plate next. He pretty much says, stop, you got to knock it off. And so even the players understand, you know, the, the players are kind of in a fraternity together. The players, opposing players, are kind of in a fraternity at this point. you got to protect yourself from the fans. Now... The follow-up here, uh, Miles Straw is absolutely absolutely right that the people who said the things to Quan and, and threw things at him or, or threw things at him or threw things at Mercado are disgraceful. But it is also unfair to judge the entire fan base. He he said something, and I want to quote him correctly here. Okay, so Miles Straw called Yankee fans the quote worst fan base on the planet, unquote. Now, believe me, I, I totally understand where he's coming from when you consider all of those people in right field and a, a number of people in right field and a few people in left field. But again, you can't judge an entire fan base or an entire group of people. Yankee crowds can be hostile. Uh, for I, I, they're, Among other teams... But, you know, you can't judge an entire group of people. It's just kind of unfair. We kind of said the same thing with Kyrie. You can't judge all Celtic fans. You can't judge all Boston fans. You can't judge all New York fans. You can't judge all Philadelphia fans based on, you know, people throwing snowballs at Santa Claus. You can't judge all Boston for some of the racially charged moments. You can't judge all of Los Angeles for... Uh, the Brian Stowe incident, you remember, may remember there was a San Francisco Giants fan who got beaten up in the parking lot. He was in a, a he might have been in a coma, but he had uh, severe injuries. And you can't just assume that all the people in one group are inherently bad people. And so, I didn't even realize that on Monday, the Guardians played one more, played on 
uh, or uh, on Sunday, the Guardians closed out the series at Yankee Stadium. That the bleacher creatures in out in right field for the Yankees called, kept yelling "Cry baby, cry baby," at Miles Straw. So, I if it was before the the, the comments were made, I'd, I'd definitely be opposed to to what the fans were saying there. But I kind of understand it. Not not that I support it, but I kind of uh, kind of understand why they would say that after the after a, a comment like that from from Miles Straw because you're just fueling the fire. You're fueling the fire when something like that happens. Uh, but again, just an unfortunate incident, especially for a, a great a great part of the fan base. For the Yankees in the Bleacher Creatures, you know they do the roll call before every game. It's a signature aspect of the team's culture, and so for all of that stuff to happen, it's just very disappointing. And I apologize, really. You know, I'm a broadcaster. I'm always unbiased, but I apologize on behalf of just the people in this area. Me coming from New York City area, apologizing on behalf of. A few just god-awful people for something like that. One other thing regarding the Yankees, and it is, again, a bad look upon them. So, the MLB letter to the Yankees that, you know, that widely circulated or rumored letter has finally been released. It was published by SNY. Now, I read the ESPN's article in, in in response to this. Now, here's what pr- it pretty much says. It essentially says the Yankees did use TV monitors in 2015 and 2016 to decode pitch sequences, which were then relayed to the base runner, who then relayed it to the hitters. Now, the difference between that and the Astros is that the Astros had a camera that was actually in the... Du- or had a... a monitor that was actually in the dugout that had a camera that went to a camera feed from center field that showed what pitches they were calling, what pitches the catcher was calling, and uh, they used a garbage can to, or, or whistling, to tell the hitter directly. Whereas it takes a little extra time with the base runners. Sources also say that the letter, in addition, notes that then-pitching coach Larry Rothschild called the replay room about pitch identification, which is also illegal. However, I will note this. So while I was away for a week, I was fortunate enough to catch up on a lot of reading, and one of the books I read was Cheated, which is a great book by Andy Martino, who... uh, it should be noted he is also from SNY. Andy Martino wrote this book. It is excellent, and it talks a lot about the history of cheating in Major League Baseball and things that can be done somewhat legally. You know, if you, you steal signs from second base as a base runner where it's it's not technically illegal. It's, it's kind of in a gray area. It's one thing. And then the differences with stuff like what the Astros have done and in a way, what the Yankees have done here. But I read this. It's an, it's an excellent book. It lets you know a lot more about the Astros 
then you might even think I highly recommend this book. So it should be noted that Andy Martino's book says that Roth actually says, and this was, I read this like a week ago before they released the letter, and this was probably released at least a few months ago. I think this, I probably got this book for my birthday. It says Rothschild did this one time and then I think hung up the phone realizing it was illegal or discovering it was illegal. So you can give him kind of the benefit of the doubt there. Sources also say that the letter does not suggest real-time conveyance of signs from the dugout to hitters during at-bats, a la the garbage cans in Houston. So the Yankees weren't giving the, the pitches to their hitters in real time. Now, just to clarify, they did cheat. They definitely cheated. This is clearly illegal. However, it's not... It's not on a Houston Astros level. I don't think it's really even that even that close to being on a Houston Astros level. There's a there's a big difference between going to the base runner and then going to the batter when you consider there's not even as MLB the Major League Baseball has tried to speed up the game, there's not that much time between pitches. I would say this is a little more similar to the scandal that caused the Red Sox so much controversy after the 2018 season, for which Alex Cora was not punished and apparently was not part of the incident at all, the Red Sox did something pretty similar to this, which is... I, I can't remember exactly what the, the all, all the details of the, the Red Sox instance, but it's... They're both cheating. Red Sox and the Yankees were both cheating, but not on the level that the Astros were. Now, one difference here, and it doesn't change the principle whatsoever, but one difference, perhaps, is the fact that the Red Sox won the World Series in 2018, while the Yankees played in one playoff game over that two-year stretch. Now, again, let's clarify something else here. Uh, th this is not. This is also certainly not on the Astros' level of cheating. But the point is that the Yankees did, in fact, cheat. One thing to perhaps note, though, is that the system apparently stopped, or at least did not uh, continue. Uh, there's, there is a difference here. I don't know if it didn't say anything in this article from ESPN about them using it in 2017, but that this system apparently stopped or, or did not continue after or at least it was discontinued before the 17th season, did not, was not used after Rob Manfred's memo regarding sign stealing in September 2017, unlike Houston. So that's pretty much it. That's pretty much the best I think I can explain it. Uh, so it's not on a Houston level kind of similar more so to Boston's accusations, but it is in fact cheating, and it is in fact a more rampant problem in baseball, than per, or a more widespread problem in baseball than we had perhaps thought before. Hopefully in the last 
two seasons. Now going into three seasons, the MLB has made enough changes where we're not going to have a problem like this again, at least for a long time. But it's it does bring a lot of trust issues, a lot more trust issues to Major League Baseball. One more thing I would like to discuss before we close things out here, and that is more for the local people, but Bilal Powell retired this week after signing a one-day deal to return to the Jets. He is eighth in the franchise's all-time rushing list, last played in 2019, signed a one-day deal with the organization, Joined the Jets out of the draft in 2011. Uh, led the team in rushing in 2017. Played his whole career with the Jets. Usually a number two guy. Finished with over uh, with over 5,000 yards from scrimmage. Top 10 in franchise history. And just a well-respected guy. And I don't know who brought this up, I but I had heard this. That someone said, "Hey, wh- when is it lately that a guy has cared for the Jets organization so much that he wants to retire there? He's made it a priority to retire there." So a guy with really nineteen, uh, with nineteen, with nine total seasons with the Jets, credit to him for having that organizational loyalty, and to the Jets for perhaps finally instilling something positive in some of their guys. That does it for us this week. Thank you so much for sticking with us. I've got a pretty clear schedule. We'll be with you all summer here on Sports in the Waiting Room.